an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginners' all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? It's going good, Steve. How you doing? So we've been promising this one for a while. This is uh, the episode where we have an interview with Thomas Cherry Holmes, and we talk about FujiNet, which might be the most significant upgrade to Atari computers in how many years? 30 years? Just about. At least 30 years. At least maybe even more. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, I know we're going to get into what it is, but... So yeah, we have a little bit of a history of Plato, um, Arata Online, which is his version of Plato that he hosts at his house. And then also we have FujiNet, which is a hardware device that goes in your real Atari. Yeah, well, let's listen to it now. And then afterwards, you can talk about it. Okay. Sure. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff here. I just wanted to break in uh, and introduce our conversation. Thomas Cherry Holmes in early June was gracious enough to give me about two hours of his time where he went through exhaustive detail on FujiNet, Arata Online, and the Plato Network. I've cut that down into an hour. We did do video, but I can't find all the video right now. We leave in a lot of the discussion, and you need to go to https colon slash slash fujinet.online or just fujinet.online. There are comprehensive videos on everything FujiNet can do. It's a very exciting product. Now, we start after uh, Thomas and I have already done our pleasantries and introductions, and I break right in to a discussion of what he's been working on because I'm so excited about FujiNet and what it can do. I want to talk about FujiNet. You did stuff before this, too. You were working on Plato term? I was working, okay. So I've been, I, I've been for, the, for the most part, for the last three decades, a very quiet participant in the retro computing communities. And, and I have my hands pretty much everywhere. You name a machine, I pretty much have it. Some of it you see on my shelf behind me here. I do, I see. You see a 2GS over in the corner over there. So, um, Still, that's but, actually um, a pretty good machine, by the way. It is. It is. Uh, it's, it's the best of the Apple IIs, for sure. But um, So I've, I've been a very quiet participant, soft, just, just writing my own pieces of software and everything else. And roughly about 2015, I started becoming much more active in the retro computing communities, starting off with 
the work that I did with Kay Savitz uh, to, uh, to get all of the Atari educational system cassettes digitized and, uh, and archived and put up. And in that process, I actually sat down and decoded the format that was on those cassettes, reverse engineered it, and made a C library that could take and output new ones. And as a as a test uh, as a test harness, I took one of the uh, Homestar Runner Strong Bad emails and turned it into an educational cassette with the audio track and everything. So, um, not long after that, I started. Um, I now step back a- for one second. One second. Those yeah. audio cassettes are the same ones that we would see advertised that a tire was paying for. By what company was it? Do you remember that company? It was a company called Dorset Learning. Dorset. Okay. Yes. Those are yes. the same Dorset ones. Okay, got it. Yes, absolutely. They were based out of Oklahoma. And uh, yeah, there's a whole weird chunk of history behind that of what Dorset was doing and what they were doing with Atari there to begin with. But that got me pushing back in the direction of trying to do things for the retro computing communities at large. And so in 2000, uh, in 2017, I had known about a project that was happening over in the Plato community where they were trying to put together a fully functioning Plato system uh, that uh, enthusiasts could actually install on their own machines and emulation uh, so that we could take and preserve uh, fully functioning Plato systems and so that people could understand how they worked underneath by being able to work on a fully functioning system on their own. I took this piece of uh, code that which took a long time for them to get all the rights, all the licenses and everything to properly release this thing and quietly started working on uh, putting together uh, a fully functional Play-Doh system that would be aimed at the retro computing community at large. And the result of that was the project that I worked on called Irata Online. Irata Online still functioning today was a, is a place for virtually every single retro computing user imaginable to be able to take and come together to use, uh, to, to be able to use a service that would work well enough on all of these eight and 16 bit systems. Because as I initially said, you couldn't put a Commodore 64 onto Instagram. You can't put an Atari 800 onto Facebook. Although with FujiNet, that will change. I remember you asking for help from various people to put it on various computers. So how many did you get? When it was all said and done, I ported the same piece of software. That's right. And to back up ever so slightly, um, as part of the effort for Irata Online, I realized that these machines all needed a terminal to be able to take and communicate with this thing, partially because of the uniqueness of the service and secondly to try and foster the adoption across all these platforms so for that i wrote a portable plato terminal called plato term and in the end i ported plato term to roughly two dozen different platforms all with the same core code written in c that's awesome so i did see you have an st1 you have a commodore 64 amiga but you have lots of other platforms too Yes, uh, you name it, and and there were there are even some some more obscure ones as well. There was a Plato terminal written for the ill-fated Mindset computer as well. 
So um, it uses the enhanced mindset uh, graphics modes and whatnot. It is the first full piece of software written for the mindset in roughly, yeah, I'd say 37 years. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. with that, what is the content that's there? All sorts of content. So uh, as a point of context, all of the uh, original lessons that were distributed with uh, when control data would install a Play-Doh installation on a new installation, all of those lessons are there. There are approximately 16,000 educational lessons that form the backbone of, of a Play-Doh installation for every subject matter that you can think of from high school biology to, and I kid you not, how to operate a nuclear reactor. <laughs> Now, could you, do you want to go back and explain a little bit about um, who started Plato and, and uh, who it was for? Plato was started in earnest in the very late 1950s. And in fact, the project really officially got off the ground in 1960 at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in what would eventually be called the CERL Laboratory. Um, this was genuinely a long-term research project to determine whether or not computers could be used in an educational capacity because at this point in time nobody knew if this was even remotely possible uh, the first instance of uh, play-doh went online in uh, 1962 it ran on a machine called the iliac one which had been uh, which had been sort of decommissioned and put to the side and was available for use and the, uh, the first instance of Play-Doh essentially ran on two uh, video display terminals, which were custom video display. They had to take and make a video display terminal from scratch. They had to make their own keyboards from scratch and create this sort of interactive environment. And through uh, roughly four iterations of the platform, uh, which spanned uh, roughly about 25 years of development, Play-Doh developed this very futuristic platform for um, for doing educational work and the impact of what Plato provided to the computing communities at large really cannot be understated. There's so many things and I will give just one example. Um, the plasma displays that you that you see in so many different flat screen televisions etc were literally a result of the Plato project. Wow. Um, if you think back, if you think back in time to 1962, uh, memory is being costed in terms of dollars per bit. And in fact, uh, circa 1964, memory was roughly costed at about three to four dollars a bit, a bit. So they knew that they wanted to be able to draw pictures, and they knew they wanted to be able to draw complex pictures. So the idea of using a vector display that had been done on things like the PDP-1, uh, on whirlwind systems and whatnot, what they called calligraphic displays at that point, were not, they didn't really see that as tenable. So um, they went, we need a way to do, we need a way to have memory. One of the leaders of the project had run across some papers from Bell Labs from a, a few decades earlier, where they had in, experimented with a type of um, display technology called plasma display technology. But nobody had really successfully implemented it for a number of different reasons. 
Now, plasma technology was very compelling for a number of reasons, and the, the biggest of which is once you set a pixel, it stays lit. And therefore, you don't have to have memory to take and, and to implement the bitmap display. So they feverishly worked uh, through the summer, all, all the way from 1964 all the way to 1967 to take and implement uh, what would become the first workable plasma displays. And they eventually put them into their series four terminals, their, their fourth generation Plato terminals, yeah. which when you look for a, for a picture of a Plato terminal and you see this, um, flat screen display that's orange, that orange plasma look, that is literally what you're looking at, the fruits of that labor. This that's was something they literally developed in-house. And that's just one thing. I could literally go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like so much in the computing world that is literally the case of politics, so much of this got swept under the rug. It's a little bit like a Xerox Park, but with a whole different, a different company, basically. Yes, uh, Xerox Park, except it was all being done at the University of Illinois. And to tell you the truth, if you actually, if you, if you zoom out to the atmosphere of the 1960s in terms of computer research, there wasn't just one, but there were multiple hotspots of things happening everywhere. And Plato was one of those. And the, the CERL at UIUC was one of those hotspots. So when someone uses Plato term now that you've created and um, for the various computers, where is the host? Where are these files hosted that they're that they're um, hitting? Over there. <laughs> <laughs> so you so where did you get all the Plato content? The Plato content was like I like I had alluded to earlier. The Plato content was released as part of the distribution that. The CyberOne people, the CyberOne.org people are a group of Plato expatriates uh, that essentially got permission from all of the interested parties to be able to uh, not only use Plato initially as they, as they had initially, but had permission to say, okay, enthusiasts can also take and get a Plato system with all of its content as it was distributed by Control Data Corporation and to, to be able to install their own copies. And God. so that's essentially everything comes essentially as as a completed a complete installation of DT Cyber, which is the uh, Cyber One Seventy Eight Sixty Five supercomputer that this thing runs on emulator, and it's configured with all the peripherals that it needs in order to function, uh, all the disk packs, all the the tape drives that you need to start things up. Uh, even punch card inputs so you can send jobs, etc. And all of that's all set up. You get a dead start tape so you can start the system and you get all the uh, disk packs which comprise the system. And all told, you're looking at approximately six gigabytes worth of data to comprise a typical Plato system. And are you running emulated or are you running? Yes. That's what I thought. You don't have a, you don't oh, have, God. You don't have uh, a that large. Go look at it. Go go look at a picture of a cyber, cyber one seven. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think you. Were, I thought maybe <laughs> you might have a huge basement. Um, yeah. So you're running emulated, and if I if someone boots up Plato Term, what connection do they need? Is it is it telephone or is it internet connection to hit to use Plato it's Term? Internet. It's, it's internet connection. Got so, it. uh, yeah. So essentially, uh, and and that actually um, that that bleeds into FujiNet here because right. Fuji is essentially 
FujiNet was essentially me making good on a promise to the Atari 8-bit community trying to get a connectivity solution for Atari machines that didn't suck. So um, essentially for each of these machines, you typically use something like a Wi-Fi modem connected to the RS-232 port and that bridges your connection to make it look like a modem and Plato term is, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's a modem program. Uh, and the way you connect, it really depends on the system that you're connecting with. For example, in addition to the RST32 versions that we have for various machines, some machines have uh, native ethernet connections as well, um, such as the Apple II GS client, uh, and oh, wow. which uses ethernet too, uh, and the ZX Spectrum, which uh, you can use a Spectronet uh, ethernet interface to take and connect directly to it as well. But the operation is fundamentally the same. Are you on a PC or a Mac right now? I'm on a PC right now, and Did it's you... working over time, essentially, trying to, to drive all these displays. I have three separate displays running right now and literally compositing things into OBS. So. Oh, I can see. And then in OBS, um, anyway, do you want to, um, can, you, can you do a demo of connecting with FujiNet to Plato term? Of course. Um, yes, I can. So, and actually what I was going to do... Or to anything, yeah. whatever you want to connect to. Sorry, I mean... Yes, yes, of course. Um, so, yeah, as far as that's concerned, we'll actually take, and I'm going to press reset on the FujiNet right here, right now, and we shall reconnect. Now, one of the interesting... Uh, first and foremost, I'm going to take and introduce this formally. FujiNet is a... Um, FujiNet is an Ethernet interface for the Atari 8-bit community, but it is so much more than that. It's a super peripheral, which will emulate a variety of peripherals. And essentially what I'm going to do now is, is walk through all of this stuff. That's great, yes. But first we'll actually take and connect this to Plato, which to Plato term to connect to Errata online so that we can, so that I can show the through line of what's happening here. It sounds like the next thing I want to purchase, so I'm just, anyway. <laughs> Thank you. And hopefully everybody else who listens to this. So now essentially what I've done, uh, it's worth noting that the FujiNet is currently the only Atari peripheral that I have connected up to this machine right now. And not only is it the only, the only peripheral that's connected up to this machine right now, it's also being powered by the Atari at this very moment. So there's literally nothing else than just this FujiNet. Where's it pulling its power from? I mean, it's pulling the power from the from the plus five volts uh, pin on the SIO port. Now you can choose to either do that or you can power it externally through USB. Your choice. Got it. So uh, one of the things that FujiNet actually provides here is a way for you to configure what you see down here, which are drive slots. There are eight of them, just like you would have eight drives, eight possible drives on an S drive Mac system or on a real system. Uh, I'm going to take and eject what I currently have in here. We'll take and bring this back up later. And we will go pull something from a remote host here. We're going to take and mount a disk from a remote host. In this case, a copy of Plato term from this host over here. And it's sitting inside of my comms folder. And we will go ahead, select it. Where do we want to mount it? We want to mount it in drive one. Go ahead, return, read only, sure. Now it's mounted and I can go ahead and press option. It is now booting this over the network. So now you literally see this is, this is a copy of Plato term that has been booted off of the internet onto this machine 
from the cloud and it went and connected to my errata online instance automatically got it we'll go ahead and just use the guest account right here but you can tell right here just from the get-go that this is way beyond vt100 emulation oh here. yes and there's graphics already, already. Mm -hmm. right off the get-go so we can see right here i tried to uh i tried to present a a nice easy to use menu system this menu system is actually written using the development environment that is available to users all users of the system so that new software can be written for the system on the system uh you can see here we have some logos on the lower right hand corner of the screen they Basically, initially it was going to be uh, so that we could have the logo that matched your group, wherever you logged into. But uh, when I finished drawing all of these, I was so proud of them, I decided to take and want to show them all <laughs> off. And actually, and since the Atari can only do high resolution, can only do black and uh, black and white monochrome for high resolution, that's what you see here. But in reality, there actually is color. And the interesting thing about color is that the way that control data implemented color was specified in the early 80s as a 24-bit RGB color space. Oh, wow. So either they were psychic or unbelievably lucky. <laughs> so, um, so, of course, I mean, we've got, for example, a complete catalog of lessons that we can take and go into and we can take and search and look for certain things. Uh, such as the aforementioned nuclear training that I talked about earlier. Uh, waste, nuclear waste management too. Uh huh. Nuclear waste management, reactor operators. Let's let's drill down into number six there. And basic academic training for nuclear operators. <laughs> this, this is fantastic. So, and the one thing about the one thing here you'll see all sorts of mentions of custom keys things like lab shift lab shift next those sorts of things the plato term documentation actually shows what these actually map to and for the most part these are mnemonics so lab is control l etc now because of limitations on the atari keyboard i had to remap some of the shift control combinations to other keys because of literally because of the way the atari keyboard matrix works but with that said uh, if we go ahead, for example, and do a shift lab for a demo, we go into the lesson. And what it's actually doing here right now is it's actually loading in a character set so that it can display certain things faster. And you'll notice, let's see like right here, what this terminal is actually doing is it's scaling down what is originally a 512 by 512 display and shrinking it down to fit onto the target display, in this case, 320 by 192. Did you have to write that? Yes. Uh, now, I will say that we got um, that we did get uh, a lot of inspiration from the Atari Play-Doh cartridge that was written. They had a very novel image processing routine that we reverse engineered and improved. So, um, yeah, I want to actually at some point do a video just discussing how that whole process works. Basically, imagine taking a character set that's originally eight by sixteen and shrinking it down to five by six. Got it, got it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, there's some interesting acrobatics involved. So we, we go through and there's, you have these different lessons and at any time, if you want to take and quit, you can, 
hit shift stop and you know be able to take and bounce back out you can go through the menu so you have all this educational content you also have games of plenty some of the games that you see for example are things like you know uh, some, some basic things that you see like checkers for example again it's loading in a character set for the checkers pieces and the board and everything and because it's actually able to do that it renders it very quickly so the, these character sets were built for the system in the yes. 60s they were very very ahead of their time in in how they were extremely designing these their, games too yeah extremely ahead of their time you you have this complete interactivity now it's worth noting as well that play-doh terminals were touchscreen terminals that's i i did not mention that so you have touchscreen interactivity. So you have, uh, I'm not where I can actually use the touch bits and pieces, but you can take and touch to, to move the individual chess, to individual checkers pieces for example. Uh, some of the other bits and pieces of games, let's see. Let's actually, let's take it up a notch, shall we? I'm gonna log out real quick and log in as my account, as my sign-on so we can get into this next one because it needs a real user account for this one to work. I'll close my eyes and your password. Well, not only are you not going to see it, but they had the forethought ahead of time to obscure the number of dot X's to, that are shown for a given password. It's different. Oh, that's that's so, great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of, I mean, a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of forethought. So we're now logged in as me here. And if we go to games and we go to avatar, Avatar is what we would now call today a multiplayer MMORPG. I want you to note the date of what the, of this program as it comes across here. But first, we're going to draw the dragon. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, 1979, 1980, 1981, 82, 83, 84. 84. It looks like the dragon was, was drawn by someone in 1984. I don't know if that's, what, that's why it's... Yes, yes. That's really cool. Yes. So now we're actually going to go into the world. And this is a multiplayer game, so you can have multiple people playing inside this dungeon interacting with each other here. It's worth noting that the first one of these games of this type showed up on Play-Doh in 1974. Wow. So, yeah, this wasn't the first one, but it is the most popular one. So right now we're looking at an inventory display. We're in the city here and I'm actually gonna take the stairs down and we're gonna go down into the catacombs. And you can see that we're now interacting and moving around the catacombs space over here. Mm -hmm. Yep, you got it. And the interesting thing was, this was all designed to work well over a 1200 baud connection. So that's, another, that's actually another first to all of the Play-Doh wow. terminals had 1200 baud modems in them. This is at a time when, when 150 yes. and 300 were the stand, where yes. 300 yes. was like, you were lucky to get 300. Yes, exactly. So everything that we're seeing here, that's part of the reason why you have the things like character sets and whatnot. It allows these things to run really well, even at 1200 bits per second. Uh, okay, so that's another game here. But let's take it a, let's take it a step further. We're gonna go into a little game called Air Fight. And I'm going to preface this by stating that the guy who designed Airfight was a uh, was a doctorate student at UIUC at the time. There was another brick named Brand Fortner. There was another student at UI of UC at the same time that Brand Fortner was designing Airfight. The guy behind 
and, and Flight Simulator and Flight Simulator 2. So what you're about to see is literally what he saw and what inspired him to write Flight Simulator in the first place. Now look at the date on that splash screen right here. But 74. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see what these guys do with these character sets for this, for this game. Oh, just wait. So we're going to pick a, uh, a YF-16 here. We got some stats because these stats actually, these stats actually mean something in the game. So we give ourselves a call sign and we have 11,000 pounds available for whatever. I'm going to use 8,000 pounds of it for fuel. And we're going to say, that, okay, that leaves us with the ability to have 10 missiles. So we'll go ahead and put those on there because this is a dogfighting simulation. We're going to take and turn off the radar display, the full radar display so that I can do this at a faster speed here. But I am now going to pull the, pull the stick back a little bit here and I am going to set my flaps 25 degrees. I'm going to set the throttle and we're just going to go. And what we're doing here and what you're seeing is literally a first person perspective being drawn here. Hey, hey Jeff, let's stop here for a sec. So you're, you are looking right now at FujiNet screens that Thomas Cherry Holmes is showing you. What are you seeing? Tell me, okay. describe okay. what you're seeing. So right now I have, I'm seeing his, he actually is logged in to Arata Online, which is a version of Plato, which is a fully graphical tiled environment. It's not like a no mouse, but it's, it's a there's there's text menus and things, but it's a graphical environment for more graphics than you would expect for 1976. And when you get to the games, these are games that are built with basically character sets. So if you have a computer that can handle them, like the computer it was built for, these are these are like fully colored, like 16 colors per tile character sets. On the Atari wow. 800, you're seeing it in black and white. Oh, so, okay. So what I see is black and white. I don't have. I can't see a full color version. Um, oh, you, you saw like there was a dragon. What did the dragon actually look like? Well, it was so. It looked like a dungeon. It looked like a a uh, like a pixel art, a dungeon dragons dragon from the monster manual. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it was pretty cool. And what about the flight simulator game that you were describing? So that is that is a wireframe, uh, flight simulator, and it was running about. I'd say 10 frames a second on the Atari. But if you are, I mean, supposedly on the machine it was built for, it would run a full 24 frames a second. And this is a 1976. That's, that's incredible. All right, let's get back to the interview. Now this too, believe it or not, is a multiplayer game. So you can have the whole, the whole point of this is literally for multiplayer dogfights. And of course you can send, you see that little icon in the, in the, in the upper left corner there, that's a message box. You have things like a map view so you can see where you are in relation to the other players in the game, oh, wow. uh, where the other landing strip is, etc. For the, the, there's a landing strip for each, for each of the two teams, as well as uh, basically heading you know, your compass over there in the lower right hand corner for orientation. So that's air fight. So a, a first person, a first person flight simulator written 
1976. 76, exactly. He, and it, he, started it, he started it two years before. Like a multiplayer first-person flight simulator. Flight simulator. And it's worth noting that this is possible precisely because of the computer this thing was running on. This is running on a supercomputer. Right. Uh, a little bit about this particular machine. This is a 17865. It has approximately one mega word of memory. Now the word size is 60 bits wide. 60. So basically 60, six zero. Six zero, right, 60, okay, got it. Mm-hmm. So multiply everything by eight. So you're looking, if you were to convert that to bytes today, that would be approximately eight megabytes of memory on this machine, on a machine dated 1978, 1980 somewhere in there. And, you know, you've got 60 bit words, you've got massive floating point registers. This was meant for big boy computing. So you can do things like write a first person plot simulator and not even have to write it in assembler. It can be written in a high level language and actually it'll actually perform quite well. <laughs> uh, he certainly put a lot into this. Who, who were they marketing this at at the time? Was it all schools? They were marketing it to a, a wide variety of people. At the end of the day, Control Data had a marketing apparatus that, that uh, targeted universities and their computer departments. Uh, they also had versions of Plato that could be marketed to uh, high schools. They had versions that could be, they, they were trying to cover a lot of bases, but they were doing it. I think the big flaw in control data was that they were doing it thinking like a big iron computer company. And because of that, they made a number of mistakes, which ultimately caused their downfall. They were seriously trying to do some crazy things um, like, um, for example, there is an implementation, the language that's used uh, all across um, Plato is a language called Tutor. And if you've ever seen uh, languages like Authorware uh, that were used for computer edu computer assisted education, basically languages like, author like Authorware and whatnot owe their very existence and their lineage directly to Tutor. So any LMS that has a, a like an author system probably has its lineage back to this, like a learning management system. Got it. Correct. And any and then some. And they had a version of Tutor uh, called MicroTutor, which basically slimmed it down so that it could run uh, parts of the parts of a lesson on the local computer. So the, the various Plato terminals were actually full-blown computers in their own right. They had microprocessors, they had memory, and you could add disk controllers to them and whatnot for storage and, and, and et cetera. So you could de devise a system where part of your lesson would be running on the central computer, but for speed and performance reasons, let's say you needed something that did, needed to update the screen very quickly, you could take and par move part of the lesson, all or part of the lesson, onto the local machine and coordinate back with the central computer, if you wanted to. Sounds just like now. Yeah. Downloading, exactly. running everything in React locally on your browser. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, there, there's really, there's so much to it. This is a uh, Star Trek simulator called Empire. Empire, right. ZDS. So another, another classic Play-Doh game here. Uh, now, I seem to have, uh, I seem to have, my, my 1200 needs some, needs some more, more work done to it. It freezes occasionally. So now what I have here, um, I've logged in as an author account, uh, and anybody who has access on Errata Online can ask for an author account. 
to get, uh, the, to get access to what is essentially the second part of the system, which allows you, which is a complete development environment. So you can write new pieces of software. I can make my own game. Yes. Yes. And in a language that looks an awful lot like basic as an example here, we'll actually take and load up, uh, something that I will finish eventually. We will take a look at this. And we're now looking at what is essentially the editing environment. And we get to see uh, each lesson is made up, is divided into a number of parts. Each of those parts is divided up into a number of blocks. And each of those blocks can contain some sort of functional elements. So if we take, I'm gonna take and go to the second part here. I'm gonna pull up part uh, block A here, which is subs draw. This is, you're looking at right now is essentially a piece of tutor code that draws the board for the Othello game. And you'll notice as we take and go down through this, we're easily mixing bits and pieces of graphics and text, you know, uh, 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 just seamlessly together here. And in fact, the bits and pieces like the Othello pieces were drawn in the character set editor and they're specified as the character set to load when the game starts. So whenever I go into the editor, it knows to take and load that character set too, so I can use it directly. How are those dropped in? Do they have control keys to drop in the different characters in the character set? You have what's called a font key. And if you, pre if you, if you press font, it will take and switch to the other font, the, the font that's loaded, your user font. Got it. You can have one user font loaded in addition to the standard font. So that's 256 characters that you can mess with. To show that part of it in a, in a nutshell here, that was code. And you saw the code looks an awful lot like basic, but if we go into say the character set editor, for example, we can edit the character set. We can see which characters are actually used. You can see I'm using those pieces for, for drawing the Othello pieces and whatnot, and we can edit them. So there is, there's one part of the Othello. So I can move around with the arrow keys and make my changes, turn dots on and off, that sort of thing. So it's all full screen and it's interactive, but I can actually take it a step further. Uh, since this is since these characters, these Othello pieces are made up of multiple pieces, and the Plato people understood that there would be a need to alter multiple characters at the same time, they offered a multi-feature. If we go back and do multiple character add, inspect, modify, and compose the characters that we want to edit. Oh, wow. You can make your whole piece right there. Mm -hmm. And we'll go ahead and press data to bring everything up. So now we have everything basically here where we can take and modify the character set here. Now keep in mind too, this is being done on the Atari and the Atari doesn't know, had, had implements the Play-Doh protocol. So it has access to all these features. Each, each platform will take and present the best look of what it can show for, for each target here. In addition to character sets, you have, uh, of course, a big board where you can have participants come up and say, okay, I want to play you, you want to play me. And it's just a way to say, this play this person, play this person, I'm available, that sort of thing. And you've got a message box, box down below so you can send messages to each other saying, okay, hey, I'm ready to play, that sort of thing. If we go ahead and you can see uh, the, the Othello board right there ready to go. So I'm still kind of putting that all together. Still, that's, uh, really, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Let's take it a step further. They understood that not only would we, would they need the ability to display small characters, bitmapped character sets, but they needed a way to be able to do large characters as well. So they came up with something that they called line sets. 
And then the process accidentally invented proportional fonts. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so if we, if we, for example, go into this inspect here for this, for this particular line set, let's look at the font. This is a line set called errata font. And we can go to the large grid here because all these are large characters. So we have a, a vector font editor here so that we can take and create our, 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 each of our individual characters. And once we're done, we can test each as we finish them. Go ahead and try them out. Default size, size. There are no splines. That would be that would be the next evolution of font development here. But wow. you're able to take and make fonts entirely out of lines. So That's some of those lines are very close together. So um, in addition to all of this, uh, I wish I would have known I was going to do a complete errata online demonstration <laughs> because. I would have set up a second terminal. One of the things that's built into the system here is the ability to have a person share their screen with another person or with a num with up to 300 or so participants. So that so, would be like a teacher maybe in a classroom yes. or something like that. Yes. So not only was there not not, not only was there an ability to do one-on-one -on -one screen sharing so if you're collaborating with someone writing a piece of software or if you're a student having a problem, you can communicate with a teacher and they can see what you're doing. But you also have the ability to do large scale conferencing. And one of the videos that, what, that, we, that I actually put together was a demonstration of, I think I topped off at 14 uh, logins at the same time, emulated on my machine all at the same time, going into a screen share, sharing the same, sharing the same screen and bouncing it out across 14 different platforms wow. at the same time. And the system just takes and translates back and forth. It's, it's transparent screen sharing. And now keep in mind, in, in the 70s, in the 70s. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, these guys are way ahead of their time. Like why uh -huh. they couldn't sell this thing, I don't know. Maybe someone did an IBM on them and, or on Microsoft and then bought them out and then got rid of their product. It's, um, well, the, the story of what happened with Plato is told very well in a book called The Friendly Orange Glow. And it's written by a guy named Brian Deere. He spent roughly a decade writing this book, going into the history of the Plato system and following up with its cultural impacts on the computing industry and ultimately what happened to Plato. And it actually goes through and explains what happened. And the short of it is, it's complicated. There were a lot of mistakes made over a lot of different years with multiple entities. And it just, it, it ultimately, Plato ultimately had what I would describe as a soft landing. Uh, the last commercial Plato system was Novanet, and it was shut down at the end of 2015. Oh, wow. So, and that, and, and believe it or not, that Novanet system was still running <laughs> the same software on the back. <laughs> uh, they, they actually forward ported it first to a custom wire wrapped 60 bit machine and literally implemented an ECL logic, which they called Zephyr. And then they moved that over to, uh, uh, to a deck, to a, a set of deck alpha systems. I emulating see. the system as they went. I see that the friendly orange glow is available everywhere. I'm going to buy one. It's $15.11 yes. right now. So 
I would highly recommend buying this book. It is an illuminating read on multiple levels. So essentially what I had been doing for Errata Online was trying to take and make a place so that all of these different eight and 16 bit systems could ostensibly come together and have a, have a community of our own that would span all of these different platforms and allow us to come together and share and collaborate and then and, uh, cross-pollinate things. Because one of the biggest criticisms that I've had of the retro computing communities at large is that they are highly tribal and highly isolated and they don't really share things beyond their walls. And this was an attempt to try and break that down. Oh, this is a great, not just attempt. Most of the other systems have a Wi-Fi connection. Most yes. of them. Um, yeah. the, the Atari has some other ones besides a FujiNet, but FujiNet sounds like the best one. Well, we'll mm -hmm. talk about other things it can do. It looks like it emulates drives and you can send files and stuff to your machine. All of the above. I am. I, I just bought that. I just got to one from my other browser that has my Amazon account logged in. And I bought that book. So excellent. Um, you, you will you will love it. It's uh you're just gonna you're gonna flip through and go, holy shit. Exactly. Plato term um and Arad Online are incredible. What else can um your uh, can FujiNet do um to replace some of these other hardware dongles I got dongling out of my computer right now where I have a, a SIO to SD and I got multi-carts and all these things like that, what can it help me do in one? In short, it will, by the time we're done with it, it will emulate every single possible Atari peripheral known to man all at once. Hey everybody, it's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show, I play a great old game, then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. So, uh, that means, uh, to start off with, it does disk emulation. It can replace your disk drives. It does printer emulation. It provides a virtual printer, which can print out to a PDF file to replace oh, your printers. That's fantastic. And, and, to the, and to that end, it supports a wide variety of printers. We curr we're currently emulating all of Atari's officially released printers, almost. Uh, we're, we're getting close. And we also offer uh, Epson FX. Uh, dot matrix printing em emulation. So the short answer there is it can run print shop. So um, <laughs> um, it can, um, it also has an emulation for the R device. So it can act as a Wi-Fi modem with your favorite Atari communications piece of software, be it a modem, Bob term, 850 Express, Ice-T, doesn't matter. It just works. Not only does it just work, but it takes and uh, the uh, 850 SIO polling is implemented so it will load its own handler in place whenever oh, wow. it's asked. So that works. So there's that. Uh, one of the nice things about the 850 emulation, the, the Wi-Fi modem emulation, is that the um, uh, you set the baud rate 
and you don't have to fiddle with any modem parameters after you set the baud rate. Things like setting baud rate, setting translation, everything's tightly integrated. So you set it one place, it works. There is also a nice large buffer sitting on that R device. So you can run at 9600 baud, 1900 baud, and it will work. As long as you have, as long as your communications program has a big enough buffer on its end, the Fujinet will gladly take and buffer what it can on its end to take and send over as fast as it can. There is also, in addition to D, P, and R, we have a, a number of uh, small uh, devices that we've taken and, um, and are putting together. One of them, just on a goof, we did this just to, just to prove the point. Um, the ESP32 that we're that we base this thing on, which is an ESP32 microcontroller from Espressive, extremely extremely capable uh, microcontroller, has a pair of 8-bit DACs on it. Hmm. So you we've we've connected one of those 8-bit DACs to the audio uh, to the audio inline, and uh, to prove that it worked, uh, we ported SAM to it. <laughs> So it, 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 it exists as a printer device. So you can send text to that <laughs> device and it will speak back at you. That's awesome. That's really cool. And not only that, but because it's running on the ESP, no more black screen. Yeah, so you can, so, that's great. Yeah. Separate processor to run it on. That's yes, awesome. it's, yeah, we're not having to bit bang the we're not having to bit bit bang things together with the screen off to make it sound right. Um, so there's that. There's things like that. And finally, there is what we call the N device, N for network. And this guy is it's a whole new class of device for the Atari, and it's divided up into into two pieces. From the FujiNet side of things, it provides access to the network specifically uh, through a, through a number of protocols so you have the end device can provide can talk to tcp sockets it can talk to udp sockets directly and provide a nice clean io interface to the atari using the standard atari io idioms in addition to that you have offloaded protocols such as http https yes SSL and TLS are supported. Encryption, the, the ESP takes care of the encryption. Um, there is a, a protocol to, for, for FTP. There's a protocol for, uh, the file, for the file protocol that we're using in, uh, uh, on uh, FujiNet called TNFS. Hmm. And essentially what these do is it, they take care of all of the protocol details on the ESP itself, again, with the aim of providing a nice, clean, consistent interface to the Atari. And more protocols are, going, are being added literally on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the next one up for me is I'm adding an SSH support. Oh, wow. And uh, so, yeah, you'll be able to literally talk to your Linux box from Atari. <laughs> from Atari. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it'll just work. So, um, so yeah, the end device is uh, implemented as uh, a set as a as a set of SIO devices. That if you're a programmer in a language like Assembler or C or Pascal or whatnot, you can just use those devices directly to write your net your games and your applications to take and do whatever. Uh, if you're writing something in Basic, however. 
uh, we've provided a CIO device, a CIO handler that provides an in colon device so that you can, you know, open number one, comma, 12, comma, zero, comma, in colon, but uh, and then do input number one, comma, a string, print number one, comma, a string thing. Those things work. So uh, you can write a chat program in about five seconds. <laughs> so uh, in addition to that, since it's a CIO device, that also means that every other program that can right. deal with CIO will just work. That means uh, Atari DOS, that means DOS XL, Sparta DOS, whatever, will be able to use this end device. You can copy files to and from the network. You can load, you know, load, load programs, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, load documents into Atari writer and do all of this uh, transparently through this handler. And for those situations where you don't have, where you don't have the memory to, to dedicate to that handler, I provide a set of equivalent utilities that talk to the FujiNet directly to take and perform those functions. Things like ender, in copy, in you know, in delete. Right. So I'm trying to cover all the bases. There. That's what we have right now. There are more things that we have planned to put on this thing. So with that, wow, that's a lot. In essence, it could do everything my SIO to SD can do. Uh -huh. as just a small piece of what it can do, right? Like I can set, I can load disks off the network. Like um, I, I think Bill Lang has been doing that, lo yes. loading disks off the network and playing with them. And, and basically you just can have a file share running on one of your machines um, yes. that's network available and you yes. just load it off of there. Correct. Really cool. Not only that, well, and, and one, of the, one of the things that's slated to come up too, we currently support ATR and XFE images. Um, I have all of the information needed to support ATX images oh. as well. Yeah. So that will that will be that will go in as well. So you'll be able to load copy protected stuff off the network as well. Right. Okay. That's even the S drive Max does ATX also. Right. Yes. Right. Correct. And uh, yes. And basically the same bits of information that were allowed that allowed the S drive Max to be able to implement ATX. I'm also using those same documents to implement uh, and you know the ATX support for uh, for us. The major fundamental difference is because copy protected stuff is so timing dependent what actually happens when you select an ATX image to load it will take and uh, load the entire image into memory and literally into the memory of the FujiNet and run it from there. That way it's not too fast or too slow right like it's, it's exactly depends That's on the platter spinning in some yes. way. We have to emulate. We have to literally emulate the the spending the spending of disk rotations. We have to emulate disk errors of all kinds. Yes, all of that. Jeez. Stuff. The the speed at which head the head step happens. All of that wonderful stuff that you have to deal with. When do you think the uh, the version one will be for sale? We are hoping to get version one done by the end of the year. That's great. Right now, at this particular point in time, we are sitting at. Almost everything that we've wanted to put into this thing, we've been able to put into it. Now it's basically filling in the gaps and debugging everything. This is the first time in my entire history of making, uh, of being an engineer and making things, in which we literally had a whole batch of stuff that we wanted to do and literally got 95% of it in there. And the other 5% is simply because we haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> uh, how much do you think it's going to cost when it, when it comes out? 
I can't, uh, I can't quote an exact, I, I can't quote an exact price. It will be cheap. It will be, it, it literally your eyes are going to pop out, out of your head as to how cheap this thing is. So, I mean, this literally, you could not have had a, a better marriage than the ESP32 and the Atari here. So the ESP32 microcontroller is relatively mm -hmm. inexpensive compared to other devices that yeah. Oh my God, it's so cheap and it has so many features. It, 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 it is the closest thing I've ever seen to the engineering trifecta uh, in terms of literally features, pr price and performance that I've ever seen in a microcontroller. Is ever. it? And just on that microcontroller a little bit, is it 8-bit, 16-bit? What are you what are you using to? It's a 32-bit microcontroller. Oh, okay. So you have to program 32-bit assembly to get that thing to work. Everything is 32-bit assembly. Uh, it's thankfully, thankfully we're writing everything in C. Oh, oh, okay. Well, that's great. Thankfully we're, yeah, we're writing everything in C. And in fact, some bits of it are in C++. And it's allowing us, uh, it's allowing us to get a lot of things done. Some of the specs on the unit that we're going to be shipping in production, we are maxing out the ESP32 to its full size. That is um, approximately uh, 16 megabytes of flash and eight megabytes of RAM. Oh, wow. And the reason that we're doing that is because uh, we don't know what crazy person, uh, be it American or Polish, is going to uh, take this thing and make it do something we never intended it to do. So we're, the whole goal is to make enabling that as much as humanly possible. So it's a chip. The chip's running at, is a dual core, is a dual core chip running at 240 megahertz. And there's actually enough, there's enough CPU time, of course, to handle SSL and TLS, but there's actually enough time, there's actually enough emulation time inside of it to run a complete Atari 800 inside of it with video display. Oh, wow. And to bit bang out a complete NTSC video display out the GPIO port. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so Thomas, how did you get started with Atari with Atari computers? Like, uh, would you do it? Would you have them as a kid, or did you just start? Yes. Oh. yes. Basically, basically, um, by the time I was born, well, by the time I was I was born, Dad already had several computers in the house: uh, TRS-80 Model One, MSI-8080, and a PDP-1145 in the garage. <laughs> now, by the time uh, by the time I was two. Dad had basically moved on from the model TRS-80 Model 1 to the uh, Atari 800. And by the time I was four, I got my first one. My brother and I got matching 800 XLs with 1050 uh, drives and, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and monitors. And not TVs, but mon and, uh, monitors. And um, so that was my, that was my first, uh, well, that was my first machine. And... Um, the, for that reason, the Atari 800 does have a special place in my heart. And over the next few decades, um, you know, my father and I would collect and tear apart and understand hundreds of different machines and platforms. And it was through all of that that I got my tentacles into all of these other retro computing uh, spaces and, and communities as well. Everything that you could think of, uh, because I had the means to be able to do so, we had all these different computers and I was exposed to all of them. So this notion of 
trying to bring them all together has been with me for a very long time. Oh, wow. Yeah, it brings together everything from your childhood, too, that you remember, all these different machines. Yes. I started, I started writing, I, I started coding in BASIC on the Atari when I was, uh, uh, by the time I was two, by the time I was, um, by the time I was five, I was writing in 6502 assembler. And so you're literally a genius, basically, is what you're trying to say. Um, you don't know, you don't, you don't need I to. Guess. <laughs> well, I still can't program in 6502 assembler, even though I've tried a bunch of times, yeah. If I may, I, I think we, we, we started talking a bit much. I could do a, a whirlwind, just kind of brush through sure. of, of, of a feature set. Yes, please. Go for it. So if if we start here, now, of course, um, sorry, um, I've hit reset here on FujiNet. It's going to boot into what we call config. It connects to my network here. And of course, we have the ability to take and load uh, virtual disk images. The canonical one that we did, the very first game that we, the very first thing that we ever brought up successfully from the network was a copy of Jumpman. So it's kind of a tradition. Anytime a new board bring up happens, we take and we boot Jumpman on it. So if we, let's go here, we boot them up. It's actually, like I said before, you just imagine a 1050 with a really long cord. So you're able to take and, and, and deal with, uh, with, with disks virtually over the network here. Moving this a bit further, let's see, let's go back into config here. We can load up, I'll load something off of, uh, the FujiNet has uh, SD card storage as well. So you can have local storage uh, on the FujiNet itself. In my case, I use it to store uh, all my various disk operating systems. And I've got a sector copy at the, at the ready here, just ready to go. And uh, a little bit of, just to kind of let you know how, how gonzo this can actually be, I'm actually gonna do something a bit unusual here. We're going to take and bring up a copy of uh, sector copy 810 here. We're going to grab that, uh, we're gonna grab that copy of Jumpman that I just pulled here. And then we're going to go down to drives, make a new disk. And I'm going to put this on my local file server here and put it into slot two. It's a 90K disk. We support everything. And yeah, there's even custom. So you can make a 16 meg disk, no problem, whatever. Are you sure? Yeah, sure. And now that disk is made, it's ready to go. And at this point, and I don't know if you noticed or not, but high speed is actually supported all the way up to divisor zero. So it is literally taking and copying, you know, uh, the disk simulation is complete. I'm doing sector copies over the network here. And it's just, okay, no problem. We're gonna see how fast this is in just a second when it writes. And that's it, you know, that's it, uh, US doubler divisor uh, 10. Right. So uh, it, it goes even faster at zero. Almost done here. So, so now we've done that, and I'm actually going to, um, I'm actually gonna press a little button here on my FujiNet that swaps what it does is it does a rotate and yes. moves the discs around the slots so we've got this this copy disc that we just did in drive three i'm going to move it over to drive one bang and then we're going to take a boot so for this next bit here i'm actually going to uh set a couple of things up here um one of which uh, a disc that i'm working on here with a special copy of dos xl so 
we'll just kind of load it up like here. So what we see right there, that's actually the end handler that's loaded. It's now loaded into memory. But I'm not going to show that just yet. What I'm actually going to do is I am going to, I'm going to go ahead and list this to the printer. And what it's done right there is it went ahead and created a little virtual PDF for me, which I can go pick up through the web admin. If you go to the Fuji, to the address for the FujiNet, you'll get a web page. And on that web page, you'll see some configuration information. And this will be fleshed out in the coming months here. But currently, you're able to set up a printer type. And you'll see as part of being able to set that printer type, you can set a, a file-based printer for you know raw or ASCII if you want to take and do direct ASCII output. But you also have the ability to set different printer, including uh, Atari 1025, Atari 1027, etc. Let's say 1027 program listing output, and this was pulled directly from uh, this was pulled directly from the. Uh, uh, from doing a list P on a large piece of software. Now I've got that up. Let me bring up a let me bring up a window so we can see it here. And there we can oh. uh, we should see it right there. And you can see, yeah, there's uh, that's the output from one of my listings uh, from Atari Macro Assembler. It just I just send it out to the printer, and for all intents and purposes, it just sends it out with matching fonts, everything nice and neatly paginated, and it can be printed on your closest printer ready to go in PDF format. Wow. Um, not only do you have that, but you have, um, if we look at some of the others, you know, like 1025, for example. And again, it takes and embeds the proper fonts and everything in automatically. That's beautiful. Thank you. And <laughs> I'm very proud of, what, of the work that Jeff has done here to really make this work right. And finally, just as a, uh, just as a, as a little cherry on top here, this was output directly from print shop and there we go and finally the wi-fi emulation i mean the wi-fi modem emulation so what we have here uh some terminal programs bob term plato uh plato term for rs32 ice t go into bob term so this is this is bbsfostex.net it's running on port 23 which is Telnet port, so you can just Telnet directly to it. It looks just like an old BBS that we would go to. Exactly. With file section. Just kidding. Remember that anyway. That's yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, and yeah, that works too. I've done, I've done, uh, I've done X modem file transfers and everything. It works just fine. If you really want to do that, it's there. Okay. That'd be hilarious. Like, like you mm -hmm. force people to upload things before they can download anything. Yes, um, exactly. So that's that. Now let's take it a step further. Now the last bit here, you saw the DP and the R. Now we have the N. And this is where things get crazy. If we take and eject and I'll put back the, the disks that I had before. So now we're sitting inside. This could be any DOS whatsoever. In this case, I chose DOS XL. On this disk, we have a number of utilities which can be used to configure FujiNet. These are individual utilities that can be used pretty much anywhere to do things like list the drive slots that you currently have allocated, uh, do things like look at the network configuration, that sort of thing. All, all these little utilities that you can use, some of them have parameters, some don't. 
So if we take, for example, now, in addition to the D device that we have, we have a number of in commands for things like in CD, in copy, in directory. So we now have this in device that we can talk to. Let's go somewhere. If we take, for example, and we have an in device spec, which also contains a protocol, in this case, FTP and a path. And within a moment, we get our FTP directory listing back. Okay, great. Uh, we can take it a bit further and you can just keep going down even further if you want to. And you have access to the files on this FTP site. Now there's a utility here that we have that I tried to make things easy. Uh, we can set the directory prefix for n to automatically go to so stuff collections and go even further. Uh, let's see. Uh, and we can see where we are at this particular point in time. That's the, that's the directory for the end device right there. Now, if we take and do a directory on that end device, we should see lots of interesting files that we can Everything deal with. From Antique Magazine from 1988? Yep. You're saying it's you on pigwa.net, right? Yes. I'm literally, I yeah, am literally connected. using pigwa directly right <laughs> through the end device. Okay, yeah, wait, but Jeff, Jeff, so, so tell, this is, wait, this is really fascinating. What, it, what, what are you seeing right here? Okay, FTP, ftp.pigwa.net. The, um, uh, it is a, it's an Atari FTP archive. He's going straight there and going to um, one of the folders and loading in an ATR image over FTP. Wow. So, so let me ask you, Chris, so does this mean that like if I had an Atari, let's say I've got my Atari 800XL set up and I get a FujiNet. All I really need to do now is just have the FujiNet and I can play almost any Atari game I want and I can load almost any ATR in if, if I want to, any, any game file or anything I have on an SD card or anything else. Like it, like it really is sort of, sort of makes it so your Atari 8-bit computer has access to almost everything. You could go to the HomeSoft game collection on Pigua and you could load any one of the, and I don't think it has all 400 and something discs yet. It's 432 on here. But, um, you know, the rest need to be uploaded. I might download them and upload them here if I have uploading um, capabilities. But yeah, and you, or you could set up a file server in your machine and you could hit your machine as a- on the Oh, yeah, on, like on the network? Okay, yeah. so let's get back to the interview. Not copying, no, no, watch this. So now I'm gonna take this a step further. I know that there's a, cup, a game called Frog in this directory, so I'm going to load it. So there we go, we just loaded that game directly off the FTP server through the end device. Directly to the machine. Directly to the machine. That is incredible. Take it a step further. That there are four end devices that are exposed by the end handler. And you can take and set, for example, in two to something else. I'm gonna set it to uh, my uh, TNFS server that's here. And if I do a directory on that TNFS server, yeah, I'm still there. We can do a directory on N2 now. And that's my local file server right there. So N1, N1 is still pointed over at PIG, while N2 is over here on TNFS. Now watch what I'm about to do here. 
And the only reason I'm using nCopy for this one is because there's a bug in the, in the DOSXL copy command. Otherwise, you could just use copy to do what I'm about to do. Uh, so I'm going to take and copy. It has just taken and buffered that whole thing in, in one burst and then is sending it over. Now, it's sent that over to my TNFS server. So now if I do a directory on N2, there it is right there. Bam. It oh, just wow. copied it over. And not only that, but you have uh, you have the ability. If the file system that you're talking to has directories, then no problem. You can make you can make directories there. So there you go. Now I will take and uh, well, this uh, CIO this CIO integration goes even further. If we take, for example, and just boot in. Now, the, th the thing about it is, when I tell the FujiNet to go to a particular network location, it remembers it on the FujiNet, and it stays there until it's cold started or whatever. So I can still do this, for example. So regular reset does not reset any of those. Yes. So there, I just booted a basic program right there, and so on. It's completely integrated into the, uh, the Atari I.O. subsystem. Wow. And so you have, because it's integrated directly in, you can do things like write your game. If you want to write a game for the 10-liner basic contest, here it is. You have the ability to do it. Uh, and you know, in this case, uh, there's a tic-tac-toe game that I'm taking and debugging at the moment that literally runs, entire, uses UDP and uh, does all the game moves through UDP and uses standard print and input commands to send, to send the data across. So. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> so, and it's just, it's, it's just it, it just goes, it goes on and on. Now, to finish this part of it here, what I'm actually going to do, I've got, um, I've got those prefixes set. I'm gonna put in an ultimate cart here. I'm going to pull over, pull up, pull up a copy of Atari Writer, and we're going to open from the end device a document. There it is, ready to edit. So I'm able to take and transparently take and, and bring in, uh, bring in, you know, documents, edit documents. I can go into. Uh, I can go into languages like Action and bring in source code directly over the network. So let's see here. Let's read from the end device. And remember, this, these are on two different protocols here. N, N is FTP, N2 is TNFS. It could be HTTP, could be whatever. So I just brought in a piece of code in directly into Action. I can take and compile it, do whatever. That just kind of gives you an idea of um, of, of, of where of, of where we are at this particular point in time. Uh, I didn't go into any of the example programs that we have here, but we you know we've written a game of tic tac toe, the chat the chat program. Uh, I wrote a who is I wrote a who is client just to demonstrate how to do you know basic TCP communication and so on. So uh, it's important to understand if you actually go to, for example, the FujiNet Online, uh, let me, yeah. If you look at FujiNet Online, you'll, uh, FujiNet.online, there are a number of links to go 
to, that not only shows what the device can actually do in our current feature set, uh, as well as some basic documentation, but there are a number of green buttons down here on the bottom, which link to our various community outreaches. Uh, we have the, the, the GitHub page, we have our Discord server, uh, and we have our little Twitter communication channel. And uh, we also have a Patreon page here so that uh, you can help, you know, basically help push this thing along. Uh, so this, this project is unbelievably uh, public. It is um, virtually all the source code is available firmware and everything is available. And once we make back our initial money on the hardware that we produce, we will be providing all of the build files for the hardware, the, the Gerber files, all the bits and pieces that you can make your own. And even without that, even with just the schematics that we have released, there, uh, the Polish contingent is already starting to take and build uh, <laughs> devices. And this is exactly what we want because I we want every device out there. User happens. Yes. With this, this is it. This is this is the end all, be all, and we want every single Atari user to have one. This is this. This will be the standard. So that is that so, is awesome. Yeah, I'm sorry. I bet Lothric is out there. He's already built something that is that. Big. Uh, oh, Zaxxon already built one. Oh. <laughs> so Zaxxon, Zaxxon's already built one, and 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 yeah, several. And there's already a couple of uh, coders that are in our in our in our Discord channel, and I'm helping them. They're helping me by writing code, and so it's allowing me to take and debug the firmware and to push all this through. So, you know. Uh, yeah, all, all, all in good fun, and, and we're having we're having a blast doing it. This is easily the most successful project that I've done to date. So, uh, and and we've been able to pretty much hit every target that we've that we've set our mind to, which is for me is unprecedented. I want uh, I, I want this to be the Atari peripheral that every Atari user today needs because not only will it take care of every extent Atari peripheral that's already been made, but it will also bring the Atari into the 21st century to make a whole new class of things. It's usable immediately out of the box in terms of its disk emulation capabilities and its ability to do virtual printing and its ability to do the Wi-Fi modem. And with the end device, we have the ability to take and make whole new classes of applications. I want to see a whole new category pop up on the 10 liner basic contest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, and not only that, but not only that from the Atari community, I want the other retro computing communities, uh, Commodore 64, for example, to take a look at what we've done and say, huh, I wonder if we can do something like that. And to literally shamelessly copy what we've done. I want them to do that. So it's, uh, you know, just to, to, to try and to, you know, to try and push these eight bit machines forward into in, in and make them first class net citizens i mean you know we, we support tls ssl uh there will be a built-on um there will be a built-on json and xml parser on the esp so the oh, attorney wow. doesn't have to worry about that uh, we've got the cpu time why not um and that will make it a build the ability to, to make things like twitter clients and whatnot to be simple and so that's really it. I mean, um, 
I'm there, there are a lot of things that are actually on that are on that are on the docket here. A simple web browser is one of them. Twitter client, for example. Uh, I'm actually going to do a Gopher client because uh, it would be interesting to use Gopher as a uh, as a sort of website between FujiNet users because uh, it's lightweight enough and fast enough that you could actually do some nice things with it. Um, put all these archives through and, and use Gopher for this purpose. That's another possibility. And but for right now, at least, my immediate focus is to take the feature set that we currently have that we've and that we've set solidified. Now, all the features that we know that we want, we already have them uh, codified. It's firming everything up and uh, debugging everything, and that's going to take the rest of the year. Easy. All right, Thomas. Well, thank you very much. I'll uh, talk to you at the next Atari uh, meetup. I look forward to it. <laughs> Me too. Thanks a lot, Tom. So one of the things that, that they're really, really proud of and it's really cool is the ability to print and to use the uh, print shop and some of those. And what print, oh, shop, actually, really? and what print shop actually does, and I, I, I had to cut it out because it was part of, there's a lot of muffled parts from bandwidth problems. When you created a really elaborate print shop thing and printed it out on your dot makers printer, it would take like eight hours to print out. Yeah. It actually takes eight hours to create the PDF file that you would oh need to print gosh, it out. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's, it's using your, now if you, it's using your 800 to go to, at its speed, to send data to the printer driver through that port so it's got the same bandwidth. Yeah, that's cool. If, if you wanted to use PrintShop on an emulator and do the fast speed, you could, you could create it. I mean, I'll tell you what, a lot, of, a lot of retro computing and video game is all about nuances and, you know, what's, what's a better nuance than waiting eight hours for a PrintShop file to come out? Exactly. Exactly. That's a so, that's cool. that's pretty cool. So I know that. Um, did, did you get a FujiNet? I have a FujiNet right here, and unfortunately, I've not tried it yet. And um, there's a lot to get into, and I'm not yet ready to get into it. Well, I mean, we could always do another episode about FujiNet. Yeah, we could want. do an episode exactly. But I think that um, what Thomas showed me was fantastic, and I have a, a beta version. I think they are for sale, but only to select people. And they're still working on the firmware to do a bunch of stuff. So and the yeah, software. Yeah, wait to get. I saw that it it emulates a modem, and I'm like, oh, remember a modem? That's what we yeah, used. A modem. So that's what we used. And um, yeah, during our conversation, our I forgot modem. that we'd used a modem, but that's what we used on. The yeah, software. that's cool. Anyway, that was a great episode, Jeff. I, I mean, for Atari 8-bit, you know, computer fans, it sounds to me like, you know, we've reached a panacea of hardware additions to yeah, the Yeah, and, and really, platform. Thomas really wants it. He's going to publish this entire spec so anybody could make one when he's done with getting back at the money he spent on, on the design. And he also wants to publish a spec. He wants people on with other computers to basically build identical devices. Right, and he said it's most of it is C code, right? So he can um Well so C is <laughs> C okay. So C code is what the um there's a it, it has it's built on top of this microcontroller that it, that's in C. He's right, building he that ESP thirty two. But um games you could build on on a red online just by going in and creating them creating character sets and creating logic online. It's really cool. Oh, that's cool. So it's really you're like you're creating Planet games. Yes, you can create Planet games also by yeah. logging in. And so once you have one of these, you can create games on there. If you have an admin account, you're basically creating on his server at his home. So you have to be like given permission to do it. You can also log in from the internet too, from the web. So that's what, so you could log in from the web. You could log in with that's your Windows That's what a Rod Online is. Yeah, into a Rod Online, you could log in with your Windows machine and see things in full color. 
Oh, that's cool. All right, man. Well, that was a good episode. So, hey, Jeff. So, I mean, having a, being able to connect your Atari 8-bit computer to the internet and have it act like it was connecting to a Plato term um, back in the 80s, that's directly out of the vertical blank, isn't also, it? Also, they're creating a Twitter client right now, a web browser, other things. So it's going to be very interesting to see how it works. That's awesome. All right. Well, that's cool. Okay. Uh, hey, Jeff, into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Into the vertical blank. Hi, this is 8-Bit Jeff again. I apologize for some of the quality wrinkles in the interview. Um, once the interview's in the can and it's two months later, it's hard to redo it. So I had to cut some things out when we had bandwidth problems. But I'd like to take everyone out again with another great song by Tony Longworth called Dance Me This. Take it away, Tony. Into the vertical black.
into the vertical blank. Data, v blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.